and welcome to The Rob Burgess Show. I'm, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 70th episode, our guest is Sarah Kensinger. Here's her biography. I am a writer. I am best known for my critical take on the prestige economy, my reporting on St. Louis, my coverage of the 2016 election, and my academic research on authoritarian states in Central Asia. My best-selling essay collection, The View from Flyover Country, was published in 2015. I am currently an op-ed columnist for The Globe and Mail, where I focus on U.S. politics. I also am the U.S. correspondent for the Dutch news outlet, Dick Correspondent. I previously was an op-ed columnist for Al Jazeera English, where I wrote about exploitation, particularly in higher education, the diminishing opportunities of America's youth, and gentrification. I have also covered internet privacy, political repression, and how the media shape public perception. My April 2013 article, The Wrong Kind of Caucasian, is the most popular AJE op-ed of all time. I have also written for Politico, The Chronicle of Higher Education, The Guardian, Foreign Policy, Quartz, Slate, The Atlantic, Medium, Radio Free Europe, Opinio Juris, Alternet, HRD, CVR, Politico Europe, The Chicago Tribune, The Baffler, Blue Nation Review, Alive Magazine, Ethnography Matters, Registan.net, The Common Reader, The New York Daily News, La Stampa, World Policy Journal, The Brooklyn Quarterly, The Diplomat, Marie Claire, Center for International Governance Innovation, Teen Vogue, City AM, World Politics Review, and The New York Times. In August 2013, Foreign Policy named me one of the 100 people you should be following on Twitter to make sense of global events. In October 2013, St. Louis Magazine profiled me as one of 15 inspirational people under 35 in St. Louis. In September 2014, the Riverfront Times named me the best online journalist in St. Louis. In June 2017, St. Louis Magazine named me the best journalist in St. Louis. In addition to working as a journalist, I am a researcher and consultant. I have a Ph.D. in anthropology from Washington University in St. Louis and an M.A. in Central Eurasian Studies from Indiana University. Most of my work focuses on the authoritarian states of the former Soviet Union and how the Internet affects political mobilization, self-expression, and trust. My research has been published in American Ethnologist, Problems of Post-Communism, Central Asian Survey, Democrat Itzatsaya, Nationalities Papers, Social Analysis, and the Journal of Communication. I am a program associate for the Central Asia Program at the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University and a research associate at the Russian, East European, and Eurasian Center at the University of Illinois at at Urbana-Champaign. I am frequently interviewed by the media and have been a guest on NPR, MSNBC, Al Jazeera, CBC News, BBC World Service, and other broadcast outlets, and am a recurring guest on the MSNBC show AM Joy. I have given talks all over the world as an invited speaker at academic conferences and forums on foreign policy, politics, education, and technology. I occasionally serve as an expert witness in asylum cases involving applicants from Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan. And now on to the show. Hello? Sarah? 
Yeah, this is. Hey, this is Rob. Hi. I have no idea what happened. The phone didn't ring at all, so I just figured you were running late or something. But oh, no. no. I've <laughs> been calling and sitting here, but that's okay. It's probably, you know, oh, it's probably weird. just the Russians stopping this information from getting out there, I think. Sometimes <laughs> it actually is things like that, but Uh-oh. <laughs> I'll be honest, but I had some issues back in the fall. Oh, goodness. <laughs> okay. Well, for people who don't know who you are, go ahead and uh, just introduce yourself here real quick. Um, I'm Sarah Kenzier. I'm a journalist and a scholar of authoritarian states, especially in the former Soviet Union. Yeah. So, uh, where did you uh, where did you actually grow up? Um, I grew up in Meriden, Connecticut, which is a city like about halfway between Hartford and New Haven. And I've lived in uh, St. Louis for the last twelve years. Okay. And uh, you went to Indiana University at one point. Yeah, I went to. I lived there for two years. Um, I got my MA there in the Central. Eurasian Studies Department um, back in the mid 2000s. Oh, what years? Uh, 2004, 2006. Oh, it's so funny. We were there at the same time. Oh, really? Uh, what department were you in? <laughs> elementary education. <laughs> oh, okay, cool. Yeah, uh, my wife was a religious studies major, and that's where we met at IU. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, oh, that's funny. That kind of jumped out at me in your uh, your biography there. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. Um, so I've uh, I've had some other people actually from St. Louis on the on the podcast. Uh, I've had uh, both uh, David Carson. and and Robert Cohen, the photojournalists at the Post-Dispatch. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've had uh, Jeff Smith, the uh, formerly uh, state senator who went right. to, uh, yeah. So he's been on. So uh, I guess I guess I have, uh, and I actually didn't even know you were from uh, St. Louis when I asked uh, for your interview. And then I saw that and like, man, I just must have something about St. Louis that I'm interested in. But uh, St. Louis is the place to be. <laughs> well, I mean, it kind of is like, you know, as far as like, well, I mean, you, you describe it. How would you describe St. Louis for people that aren't from there or don't live there. Oh, gosh. I mean, it depends what aspect you're looking at, but, you know, in terms of political movements, um, St. Louis is often kind of ahead of the curve and, you know, every kind of respect, whether it's Ferguson, you know, launching um, national civil rights movements, um, you know, this is before Black Lives Matter gained national prominence, or on the other end of the spectrum, uh, the Tea Party, you know, having a very firm base uh, coming from here, and people like, you know, Jim Hoft leading their own movements, um, you know, and all sorts of stuff. Uh, in between, you know, it's a real mix. You'll get everything, um, every end of the political spectrum, people of all different races and backgrounds. Uh, it's a very sprawling, you know, kind of place, and you know, with ninety different municipalities surrounding a kind of rotting interior uh, city core, which is being revitalized to to some extent. Um, so, you know, it's an interesting cast of characters here. Right, and we're, you were writing about St. Louis before Ferguson broke out. Um, um, and then what what uh, do you think you know it's it's hard to say i guess from afar cuz i've never been to ferguson or whatever and it, why was what do you does it make sense to you that ferguson was where all that happened was was where people rose up to protest police brutality yeah sure yeah i mean because i mean it it doesn't seem like on some in some ways it doesn't seem special it seems like in some ways that kind of the story plays out uh, in a lot of places it just is it just yeah you know what i mean mean, ferguson's a very ordinary place like people in the media um they had sort of two very bad descriptions of it you know one was that it was a ghetto uh which is not you know you can go to parts of st louis that look like they're a war zone because they're so um you know battered 
down and abandoned and burnt out. And, and that wasn't from a riot. It was just the you know, result of decades of apathy um, and abandonment. You know, the other thing they say is that it's a small town in Missouri, uh, you know, which it's not. It's, you know, it's part of the broader St. Louis metro, so it's attached, um, you know, to all these other towns. And this really could have happened um, in any, you know, majority black suburb uh, of St. Louis. It's, you know, economically um, on hard times. And I had written about about Ferguson and about North County, uh, the area where it is, before anything um, happened there, you know, before Michael Brown was killed, um, because so many black low-wage workers uh, were living there, and I was doing a story about that, about the fast food movement, um, the, the strikes that workers were doing for $15 an hour mm-hmm. in a union, um, you know, and a lot of those workers uh, lived in North County. And so I sort of saw this as a place, um, you know, where there was a lot of injustice, um, where it was, you know, systemic. It was a place where people, um, you know, black families had fled from St. Louis City North into the suburbs in the hopes of getting a better way of life, uh, only to find, you know, two things happened. The housing crisis happened in 2008, uh, which led to a huge loss of, of wealth and income for them. And also there was white flight out of the region mm-hmm. once they moved in, which is just part of the, the systemic racism of, of St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when, when Michael Brown was killed, um, you know, it was yet another example of race-based police brutality. Um, I think that it was egregious and that it was just so incredibly cruel what they did after, yeah. you know, where they left his body yeah. in the road. Um, they wouldn't let his parents, you know, go near it. And then they uh, attacked the people who came out basically to mourn um, and to hold a vigil. You know, initially this it was a protest, but it was a protest that was extraordinarily sad um, and people were grieving, yet they were treated as a mob. That's what the St. Louis Post-Dispatch called them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I thought that that was uh, very unfair. And, of mm-hmm. course, the police just escalated the situation by, you know, using violent tactics um, to, to you know, target people who were really just mourning, um, rightfully, a member of their community. Yeah, I think that, you know, and I've said this before, but I think the way that they handled it um, made a bad situation worse in so many ways because they just inflamed the passions at every turn. You know, whenever they released Darren Wilson's name, of course, they released that surveillance video from the, you know, quick trip, which obviously that later was called into question by that uh, Strange Fruit documentary um, and that new stuff that they uncovered. But it was always like, there was always like, every time that happened, it was like a one-two punch. Like, they would always do it like, in the most, you know, with leaving his body on the street, for example, and just for four and a half hours. Right. And there's no, like, there's no medical reason to do that. It doesn't make the no. autopsy better. It's it's better to have that on ice, you know, and, and get that refrigerated, you know, as opposed to just leaving out in the street uh, body yeah. for everyone to look at, you know, so. No, I mean, it's just, it's incredible callousness and cruelty. And then the appointment of McCullough, um, mm-hmm. who was a biased prosecutor, was another slap in the face. And I think people weren't really surprised, um, um, you know, by the, the grand jury decision. Uh, but the ta- the tactics uh, that the police used are, you know, deeply alarming. Um, you know, they absolutely escalated it. There is no compassion. Uh, the media coverage made it much worse. Um, you know, both, I mean, some local outlets, I thought, did a decent job. But, you know, nationally, it became sensationalized. Um, there's also a lot of really cruel depictions of Michael Brown, you know, like New York Times highlighting that he was no angel on the day of his funeral. Like, 
people weren't thinking of this as like this is a family you know who lost their teenage son uh, you know who was killed for no reason and whose murderer uh, is going to walk away and get away with it they didn't seem to see it um, you know through that perspective and, and you know the humanity of, of what happened there was really stripped out of the, the coverage and the way others viewed it which is you know terrible things I don't think you can make any kind of progress um, unless you realize you know the loss of life that's that's central to this case mm-hmm. yeah yeah absolutely um, well I mean we could talk about Ferguson all day but I mean that's you know that's a situation that uh, I do think encapsulates a lot of uh, other places which is why it was probably so captivating to me because it did seem like man this is not that because I mean every time and reading that Ta-Nehisi Coates book really or not book that uh, article rather about uh, the the redlining um, mm-hmm. that opened my eyes so much because I never thought about it that there is a wrong side of the track quote unquote it's not an accident and it's why do you think that's a cliche and every town has one um, right it's it's not by accident they they cut these people out of the American dream again and again yeah and they did this in a systematic way from the government's perspective so even though people are like oh slavery ended this how many years ago and Jim Crow and blah 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 but this is you know <laughs> this is not distant ancient memories here this is like right. within people's lifetimes so anyway. oh absolutely I mean when I would go to the um, the St. Louis County um, you know meetings that they would have once a week where citizens could complain to their representatives you know there were people there that were like 80 or 90 years old saying I've lived here my whole life and I've been complaining about the same things for my whole life and now my grandchildren or my great grandchildren have to deal with the exact same problems I do you know there hasn't been progress you know because it is part of a a continuum and I do think it helps people understand that um, you know because there is this sort of flip dismissal of oh we had the Civil Rights Act or oh slavery was you know 150 Mm -hmm. years ago or whatever they want to say and they don't understand that you know this is part of a a process of locking people out of you know certain people accumulating wealth and other people being denied wealth of Mm -hmm. racist practices being embedded into you know policing and government and other you know municipal actions Mm -hmm. it's important for people to understand that so that they don't you know freak out on a personal level and say oh you're calling me a racist it's like Mm -hmm. no we're describing a systemic form of racism that you as the person should care about yeah yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but anyway, I, I did want to ask you about this one part of your biography that jumped out at me. Uh, it says, I occasionally serve as an expert witness in asylum cases involving applicants from Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan. Um, I'd, I'd like to hear more about that. What? Tell me about that. Well, I'm not doing that now because oh. of the Trump administration. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, one, I don't think it's a good idea for people to seek asylum in the United States if they're Muslim, <laughs> you know, which most people from Uzbekistan yeah. and Kyrgyzstan. Than right. are because they may be targeted. Um, you know, also we're just in a really you know politically unstable time, so there actually hasn't been that much interest, um, at least from what I've heard of, of people coming here. Um, but what I used to do, uh, you know, was serve as an expert witness in court, um, you know, for asylum cases, and you know, I would basically be there to describe uh, the country conditions, um, especially for Uzbekistan, but also for southern Kyrgyzstan, because there was a, a massacre of ethnic Uzbeks in 2010, and a lot of people fled. Um, you know, and you know, combine that with details from the applicant's case to show that it would be um, it would put their life in danger. 
future were they to return, uh, you know, to their country. Um, and so I did that, you know, in a number of cases. And a lot of people were, you know, were able to stay in the United States um, in part because of my testimony. And also just, you know, that was what the, the judge ruled. Um, you know, I do have a, I have a bat in a thousand on that one. I had one person who, who got so frustrated with the slowness of the process that they just moved to Canada. But otherwise, um, was one every case. So, oh, yeah, I don't think you can count that against your record. I mean, that's like, <laughs> yeah, that's like a really ball in baseball, you know. <laughs> it, it was just, it's such an arduous process. It really, you know, it can drag on for a very long time. Right. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Um, but what is your take on uh, where the travel ban sits at this point as somebody who's, who's worked in that field? I mean, I'm very concerned about it. It's, it's not a sensible, security-minded ban. It's a ban on Muslims. You know, it's meant to normalize, you know, xenophobia. It's punishing absolutely innocent people. Um, you know, there's so many people posting pictures of, of their relatives or their grandmothers who they might not be able to see again. And, you know, and it's also just, it's scaring people. It's scaring Muslim citizens and making them wonder, you know, what rights do they have? And when you have yeah. people like like Jeff Sessions, and when you have, you know, a very Islamophobic um, cabinet, you know, that that's a deeply alarming situation. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm concerned not just for Muslims from the countries that they've listed on the ban, but for Muslim citizens uh, in general who they, they are treating as, uh, you know, as terrorists and as criminals mm-hmm. with no evidence other than their faith. Um, and that's, you know, illegal. Um, and it also is, you know, fundamentally anti-American, um, you know, and in the way I think of America, you know, in terms of ideals, uh, not necessarily in terms of uh, historic practices. Sure. Well, <laughs> there's always a gap there, yeah. but um, yeah. But what better way to confirm ISIS's arguments, right? Like, you know, what is their what is their main theme? Uh, the West is no place for you. Uh, there's yeah. no place for you in the society. They don't want you here anyway. So why don't you come over to the winning team? You know, and and what are we doing yeah. about confirming that by like if, if somebody's on the edge? I mean. Our, what you know? What argument do we have to point to on our side if that's how we right? It's interesting because ISIS has sort of fallen off the radar in terms of you know topics that are debated in foreign affairs. I think mm. mostly because of the Russia investigation, and uh, you know, and I really doubt that um, the vast majority of Muslims who are discriminated against under Trump will find ISIS any more appealing. You know, a lot of them are here because they fled um, mm-hmm. from ISIS, but you know that's that's a problem in itself. They have nowhere to go uh, mm-hmm. because we're closing our borders, but yeah. Yeah, you know, for those who like to view this as a clash of civilizations kind of uh, situation, which you find both on the extreme right wing uh, in America and also among ISIS, um, you know, this fits that kind of mold. Um, That's something, you know, it's a gift to them in terms of of propaganda. Um, You know, and this, of course, ISIS will use anything to manipulate into propaganda, but this Mm -hmm. is a little more hardcore. And it also, you know, as I said, this doesn't actually help defend us against ISIS. Like, mm-hmm. this doesn't have a, an actual well-thought-out security component to it, because ISIS is an actual problem. This doesn't do anything uh, to stop ISIS. You know, preventing somebody's Iranian grandma from coming over does not stop ISIS. So. Yeah. Also, I mean, extreme vetting, extreme how, like, and, and what are you going to do about, like, you can't, like, people are going to lie, okay, and there's nothing you can do about it. Like, they're going to lie about who they are and what they believe. And, you know, I don't know, unless you, like, invent something where you can, like, read someone 
someone's mind and tell if they're like lying to you or something. I don't know, but that you yeah. know you can just you know you can only do so much, you know. And a lot of the a lot of the biggest problems in terrorism these days are people that are self radicalized that just find things online. You don't need to be right. one of the people that are being targeted by these bands. Uh, it's right. just such a boneheaded way to go about it because it's not even the people that you see attacking us for real. So. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them are are native born American citizens. Absolutely, and, you know the pattern is usually a young man, um, you know, sometimes an older man, often with a pattern of domestic abuse and domestic violence, uh, which I think is something they should take into consideration. You know, white supremacist and white nationalist uh, crimes and violent acts has been on the rise, including plotting of, you know, bombings and sort of mass attacks that have been thwarted by the FBI. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we have a broader problem, um, but I don't think the problem is the import of foreign terrorists. I think a lot of our problems are homegrown, and I don't think that, you know, Trump has any interest in stopping any of these problems. You know, he's already, uh, you know, cut research for, you know, the white supremacist violent groups and the militias. He actively doesn't want those groups to be researched because they often have, you know, they support him. Um, And in terms of how he's handling, uh, you know, Islamic terrorism, um, you know, it's just this sort of, you know, half-assed, xenophobic, uh, unstrategic way that doesn't actually, you know, get at the core threat. Uh, he's gutting, you know, different departments, um, you know, in, in our in our government, leaving them understaffed. And you just can't have an effective counterterrorism measure, uh, you know, when you're dealing, you know, with that kind of chaos and, you know, that, um, you know, the the dismissal of so many qualified people who would investigate this sort of problem. Yeah, yeah. There almost seems to be a hunger on the Trump administration's part for some kind of attack that they can point to to, you know, institute whatever kind of draconian measures, a la, you know, what we saw with the Patriot Act in the wake of 9-11, but probably even worse. <laughs> yeah, I've been worried about that, you know, from the beginning. I think everybody has. Um, you know, everyone I know studies autocracies, but also people who yeah. study, um, you know, terrorism, counterterrorism, have been very concerned that this administration not only doesn't know what to do to protect citizens from actual terrorists, but we'll see this as an opportunity. And we've seen this from Trump in the past, you know, when there have been um, terrorist attacks or mass shootings by Muslims, he seems happy. He, he congratulates himself for having, you know, quote, seen it coming. He doesn't have empathy for the victims, and he doesn't have any plan to thwart these kind of attacks. And I think he would absolutely use something like that as an opportunity to consolidate uh, executive power, to strip people mm. of civil rights, uh, to put out a lot of xenophobic um, and, you know, horrific rhetoric. Uh, it, it's very bad. And, you know, and of course, we've seen autocrats do this all throughout history, you know, from the Reichstag fire to, you know, how Putin consolidated uh, power early in in his reign. And, you know, I, I do fear that we may see that again here. Yeah, yeah, and I've talked about this with my friend Jonathan before, but it's like, you know, people in America don't, you know, they don't, they can't, for some reason, picture that this could happen, you know, the the famous Sinclair Lewis novel, It Can't Happen Here, you know. Um, it's like people don't even think that this something like this could happen. So I think maybe to start with, uh, maybe you should define some of the terms that we're using, because I think, honestly, like terms like autocrat and kleptocracy and authoritarianism, they aren't really, like, familiar to people, and people people that are familiar with it are super old or not with us anymore. So like people of maybe our age generally uh, might not, they don't remember a time, uh, you know, when, when those words were, 
you know, common political speak. So, right. I mean, can you, I mean, for, I guess just if you want, wherever you want to start, but I mean, maybe just, uh, authoritarianism, like, what is that? What does that look like? Right. Um, you know, authoritarianism is when, um, you know, government power is consolidated among very few people, um, you know, usually revolving around a dictator, uh, and certainly consolidated in the executive branch so that other parts of government, um, like the judiciary or Congress or certainly citizens' rights, are nullified, um, and people have, you know, very little ability to, you know, determine how they want to live their lives. Um, they're often the subject of state surveillance. Uh, they're often targeted by brute force or the threat of brute force. And, you know, there's different degrees um, of authoritarianism. You know, something like Nazi Germany would be authoritarianism at its extreme, you know, where it basically crosses into totalitarianism, which is even more uh, severe. But you also see kind of semi- authoritarian states. Um, you know, Poland, unfortunately, is becoming one. Hungary is moving in that direction. Turkey, after its coup, um, is moving in that direction. Um, and, you know, and then there are other ones that, uh, you know, have, they restrict, um, you know, human rights and civil rights, uh, you know, a lot, but they also, they also allow some degree of economic freedom. Uh, you see that in, you know, Singapore is basically a semi-authoritarian state. Um, Kazakhstan fits that mold as well. Um, you know, so there are degrees to it, and how it would play out in America, uh, you know, really is linked to our history. You know, there are some countries that have known nothing but this kind of system, whether it showed up as, you know, communism, like under the Soviet Union, whether it showed up under the rule of a czar, um, you know, but the U.S. is not that, that kind of scenario. You know, we have a constitution, we have um, checks and balances. Those are only as good as the people who enforce them, um, and unfortunately, the people enforcing them aren't particularly good at all, so we have to fight for the rights that were guaranteed. But I do think that we have a set of expectations. Like, people assume that they have freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion. Um, I don't think that it's wise to take those rights for granted, but I do think that we've grown up thinking, yes, we have these things, and then when they're taken away, we notice. Uh, whereas in a you know really well-established authoritarian state, people may want those things. They certainly want justice. They want freedom. Uh, but they don't expect it to be given to them and have developed ways to live their lives within that system and just survive um, and live around it. Um, so, yeah, you know, authoritarianism, you know, even if you haven't read a bunch of, you know, political science or, or studies of it, you could even find, like, in fiction, like A Wrinkle in Time or The Hunger Games or a lot of these kind of dystopian novels um, are kind of a good introduction, honestly, to what authoritarianism is. Like, when I talk to young people or kids, um, you know, I'll recommend those books because they, they convey the mindset of it extremely well. Yeah. Well, I've read 1984 and Animal Farm multiple times. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> George Orwell, you know, it's a very good, very clear uh, introduction to, yeah. to authoritarianism. Absolutely. Um, and kleptocracy, that was another one I wanted you to define. Yeah. Um, people should go learn some ancient Greek. That's where all these words come out of. Um, you know, crop means power. Uh, so you're that autocrat, kleptocrat. Um, kleptocracy is basically, um, you know, a system of government 
government in which, you know, the autocrat, the dictator, uh, abuses executive power to make money for himself and his family. It's like a, you know, a giant ripoff scheme in which, um, you know, the resources of the country and of the state are, uh, swindled, you know, by the ruling power, which is often a family. Um, you often see dynasties emerge in kleptocracies. Um, you know, we saw that in, you know, Azerbaijan, uh, which is a country worth examining um, for its direct connection to Trump, but also because the, the Trump family really reminds me of uh, these very flashy uh, kind of oligarch-based, um, you know, ruling, uh, you know, dynasties over there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's it's a money scam. It's based a lot in um, finances. And of course, you know, the U.S. already has a corrupt financial system. You know, we already had a lot of big money um, in politics and a lot of people who were able to, you know, have huge sway over our electoral process over our representatives, um, you know, without having to formally establish a kleptocracy. But things that Trump does, like making money off of um, Mar-a-Lago, for example, while being the president, um, you know, violating the emoluments clause or failing to divest uh, from his businesses, you know, those are all um, examples of kleptocracy in practice or deals that he's made um, on behalf of his children, like the easing of trademarks in China so that Ivanka could sell her products there. Um, you know, that's not working for American interests. So that's just working for Trump's family interests and using the office of the presidency to do it. That's that's another example of kleptocracy. Oof. Okay. So, all right, this is a tough one because I've towed up to this line myself, and I don't, I don't want to misuse this word because it's, it's, it's the word, but the F word, the fascism word. Um, right. Where do you fall on that? Where do you, where do you, I mean, I mean, it's not a hundred, like you said, it, it's a spectrum, you know, you can't say hundred percent right. this or that, but like some people are very quick to throw around the word. I, I try to be very cautious about that word. Cause I, that, that's a word right there. You know, that, I've that's been it. more cautious mm-hmm. about using fascist um, than authoritarian. And, um, you know, and I have to say, you know, we, we have a government that has authoritarian leanings, that has autocratic leanings, but we still have a society, um, that is not authoritarian. We're basically in this sort of transition or we're at this point where we could go either way. Um, you know, the fact that we're able to have this conversation and I'm not, you know, worried someone's going to swoop into my house and kill me. You know, it's a sign that we're not living in an authoritarian state. Um, I'm sorry, now I lost the, the original show. Oh, fascism. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I'm, uh, I'm a, I've been hesitant to use fascism to describe what Trump and his administration are going for is because of the role of the state. Um, you know, in in a fascist society, you know, which again, like Nazi Germany, um, you know, or, or uh, Mussolini's Italy, like those are classic examples of fascism. You know, everything, um, all power goes to the state, and the state is this sort of overarching apparatus. Whereas with Trump uh, and Bannon, and the other ideologues in this administration, they've outright said that they want to destroy the state. They want to weaken the United States. And the reason they want to weaken it varies from person to person, but part of it is because, you know, a weakened state makes it easier to carry out kleptocratic initiatives. You know, Trump has always capitalized on a crisis. You know, when 9-11 happened, he was happy because his buildings were tallest. You know, when his when uh, the housing crash happened, the economic collapse of, of 2008, you know, he swooped in and, and 
made money, you know, off of, of what was left over. You know, he's like a vulture. He has that kind of mentality. And so I don't think that they want a super strong United States. They want a weak and chaotic United States uh, that they and their partners can make money off of. Um, this is doubly complicated because they seem to be in a partnership with the Kremlin uh, to do this, where mm-hmm. Russia will also make money off of our failing United States. And not That's Russia gracious. like the Russian people, but no. a small group of uh, oligarchs and, you know, Kremlin officials. And, you know, like uh, on each side, it's a very mm-hmm. small number of people who are going to benefit from this arrangement. Like the average person is, is just going to suffer under this kind of system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, you know, that's what they're trying to do. And that's why I don't really see it as fascism because uh, while there's like a fascist streak to his supporters um, and their kind of, you know, conformity and their, you know, chants and slogans, like it kind of evokes uh, certain eras, I don't really see it reflected in the actual policies of the administration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and one, one word I'm not afraid to use, especially with regards to certain people, is theocracy, and that uh, goes mm-hmm. right to my next thing I wanted to talk with you about, which uh, one of my favorite articles that you've written is about Mike Pence. Um, right. And we here in Indiana, I've, I was born here, I've lived here most of my life, um, and you know, we've we've seen Mike Pence, and, and I, you're right about his line. His line is a huge problem. Um, we, my friend Jonathan and I, again, did a whole podcast about the um, vice presidential debate, and we just went through line by line that whole thing and just the amazing torrent of lies he spilled. But the, the manner he did it in, uh, I was just, uh, my mind was boggled because I just like looked at the commentary the next day after that vice presidential debate, and they're like, oh, well, Mike Pence won that debate. And I'm like, he won what? He lied. Every word out of his mouth was a lie. Right. But he did it in such a way that was like, it's not like Trump lies. Trump lies like, you know, like he's, a, he's a person with his hair on fire. Like, believe me, you know, like, you know, he's, he's, he's lying, but you, you, every, you, him and everyone else knows what's going on. But like Mike Pence is like, you know, he does it in a certain way. And it's like people, for some reason, it just, it passes right through people. And it's like, do you, do you hear what he's saying? Like, he's just right. denying objective reality and he's doing it in a way where apparently you accept it. So. Right. Yeah. I wrote the same thing after that to um, you know, and it, it was incredibly frustrating because really people, and I should say male commentators on TV, because this is basically the group that did this other stuff through it, um, you know, judged him on, on demeanor and on sort of the, you know, strength he was projecting. But of course, all of that strength is based on a lie. Like, he will lie calmly and blatantly uh, and without any qualms. And he's continuing to do it now. And he lied about the Russian investigation. He lied about Mike Flynn. He lies about Trump all the time, um, you know, including things that we can see for ourselves, like statements Trump has made on video. He will say Trump didn't say them, and then we'll be like, well, you know, there is a tape of this. Like, we can see it. And, you know, I think this is, this is part of the broader kind of GOP uh, version of truth. You know, you kind of see this going back to Karl Rove, where, you know, in the mid-2000s, he was like, you know, we define reality, and you're merely, you know, actors, like in our play that we're writing. <laughs> you know, this is really kind of a outrageous statement he was making around the time of the Iraq War. Uh, and Pence uh, you know, embraces that full throttle and he's very dangerous. Um, and I do think that people overlook it only because they're comparing him to Trump and they're looking at mannerisms um, and they, you know, they think Trump seems presidential. I mean, like, I, I'm really tired of hearing either of them described as presidential because, you know, a president should serve the public, a president should follow the principles of the Constitution. You know, those are fairly basic things a president should do and, and neither of them are doing that. And when Trump does something like read a script 
ripped off the teleprompter without, you know, completely screwing it up, then he's lauded as presidential. Um, yeah. But neither of them are, or, you know, have those qualities. And, you know, you were touching on um, theocracy. You know, I, I do think that that's what Pence wants. You know, he's oh extremely yes. right wing. Like, he's not, you know, Mitt Romney or something. He's not some run-of-the-mill conservative. He's an extremist. And, you know, I think that he has a lot of diehard support um, within right-wing evangelicals. I think that he was selected for that reason because they need, they knew they needed to shore up that part of the base. Um, I went to a Pence rally in St. Louis when he was campaigning, and, you know, people uh, of, of that faith and background were very taken in by him, and they were actually more enthusiastic about him uh, than they were about Trump. I think that he helped quell some fears. But in terms of corruption, uh, you know, he's just as bad as Trump is. He just has a different way of conveying it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and keep in mind, you know, I, you know, <laughs> I am not worried about Mike Pence uh, tweeting and accidentally starting a nuclear war. But right. I am worried about the Handmaiden's Tale scenario, <laughs> for example. <laughs> Which well, is why absolutely. I can't I can't watch that for entertainment anymore because of Mike Pence no, mainly. <laughs> I, yeah, I had the heart as I was watching that, uh, Missouri passed a law that makes it legal for employers to fire women if they find out that they're taking birth control. And so I was whoa, watching whoa, that. Whoa, I was like, whoa, this whoa, is, whoa, whoa. Wait, back that's up. That's a new Hold law. On. Back that up. Explain that, please. Well, the Missouri legislature, Missouri used to be more of a purple state, and now Uh I think that we're probably one of the most extreme right-wing states in terms of our legislature, not in terms of our population, uh, in the country, you know, among the laws that have been passed um, since November, including a law lowering the minimum wage, uh, we're the first state to do that, and a law that says that if your boss finds out that you've either had an abortion or on birth control or have used birth control, they can fire you. Um, and, you know, this is being contested, but that's what our government is doing. And our, gov- our governor, Eric Greitens, is a protege of Mike Pence. Um, I think he's mostly an opportunist, Greitens. I don't think that he really has very strong, uh, you know, religious convictions. I think he just, I think he kind of knows Trump is in some trouble and that Pence may be elevated to a position of power and he wants to get in on that action. He's very ambitious. But, you know, he's passing these extremely inhumane mean uh, and misogynist laws that are affecting people in Missouri. Uh, and, you know, that's that's happening here. You know, that's our real life. That's why I get very frustrated by the arguments of like, oh, this couldn't really happen. I'm like, it, it already happened in my state. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, we you have, know, we have uh, mandatory it. funerals for miscarriages here in Indiana. Right. So, you know, just you know, just wait. It's coming exactly. everywhere. But that's, this that's is the, the Mike thing. Pence. That's yeah. It exists out where we live, and people in the coastal states, which is where most of the media are located, they don't even know that it's happening, or they think, mistakenly, that everybody in the state really likes these policies and isn't out protesting them, whereas, you know, women are, you know, incensed by this, even Mm -hmm. women who are not liberal, they just want to be able to go on birth control without worrying about their job, like, they're very Mm -hmm. upset about this, Um, you know, and it's just a, a showing of might from a legislature that really doesn't care about everyday people. Not at all. And uh, if I'm disgusted with anybody right now, it has to be the Mike Pence wing of the Republican Party for being taken in by Trump and, uh, you know, just basically abandoning every moral and value I thought that they had, at least, you know, according to them. Um, I just I just can't believe these people still call themselves Christians. I mean, if you want to look at this health care thing, this has been a debacle. Yeah. Uh, I can't believe anybody that puts the ban 
banner of Christian on themselves, supported that. And, and you know, people are always like, oh, you know, uh, four senators, uh, it's super unpopular. They, they defected, and now it can't pass. It's like, what about the other 40-whatever? Like, what is wrong yeah. with them? Why, what's yeah, going on there? And I, get, I bet they all say craven. they're Christians, too. I can't believe you it. Know, they're craven and cowardly. And, and I think a lot of it is this sort of careerist conformity where they're so afraid uh, to depart from the ranks. I think that Trump and his campaign have created a culture of threat and fear. Uh, you know, we saw that in the primary, the kind of tactics that he would use against people, like these really outrageous lies, you know, that Ted Cruz's dad killed JFK. I mean, just, just things that were, were nuts. But, you know, people, the Republicans seem genuinely frightened of him. And we know that he's mobbed up. We know he has lawyers that threaten people all the time. We know that he's, you know, threatened to, uh, you know, destroy people's political careers over various things and kind of has the capacity to do it. Uh, so I think that, you know, on one hand, uh, they're afraid. Um, on the other hand, I think they're complicit in what may be, you know, conspiracy collusion, all sorts of illegal measures. And on the other hand, they just, you know, are inhumane. Like someone like Paul Ryan, who fantasizes apparently since he was young about people dying from lack of health care. Like there's something seriously wrong with him and that that's even thought of as a normal way of thinking about human beings, you know, much less being in the House of Representatives and having the capacity to act on this is just mm-hmm. terrible. Um, and so, yeah, I hope that they get their bearings. You know, I do know there are conservative pundits uh, who oppose all these measures. They're not actually in any kind of position of, you know, election yeah. power. But, um, you know, the conservative party, the ones who aren't completely out of their minds, like, they need to rebuild the GOP from the ground up if, you know, if things do eventually fall apart for Trump, because it's it's just, you know, it's corrupt and, you know, mercenary beyond anything that I think, you know, most folks anticipated. Although, I don't know, I've talked to people who've really been studying the GOP's kind of inner circles closely for the last decade or so, and they, they were not actually surprised by this. They were like, yeah, this is just sort of the worst elements have finally risen to the fore and overtaken uh, any kind of moderate. Um, that were remaining within this mm-hmm. party. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I just don't think, you know, you look at the order of succession, and, uh, you know, I don't want Trump to be president any more than anybody else does, but, like, you look at the next few people, it's like Mike Pence, Paul Ryan, Orrin Hatch. <laughs> what? Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> this it's is terrible. who we have to look forward to? What I look the? at that list, and, I, you know, and it's like everyone's either implicated in the Russia scandal or just, you know, a horrendous theocrat, uh, you know, kind of monster, or there's Mattis, who in a normal yeah. time, I would be like, well, this is this is really not someone I want to be the president. Sad, do- sad days when we have to look to, to uh, a man named Mad Dog to be our savior. You know, I think that Trump picked him only because of that name. That's always been my theory. I think Trump had no idea who this guy was. He found out he had a catchy nickname, he had a bunch of catchphrases that made him sound like a badass. And Kill everyone in the room. Why have a plan to like, kill everyone? Yeah, he was like, this is a great character. Like, let's cast him in my administration. And then it turns out that Mattis is actually, you know, intelligent and knowledgeable about oh, things. And I, you know, I disagree with Mattis on a lot. And, like, in a normal time, I would be like, yeah, I absolutely don't want this guy in charge. But of the group that's there, you know, he's sort of the best bet for a, you know, a functional kind of president. But, you know, the kind of well, I worry about the warmongering aspect to him, and I also worry about just the the damage that he would have to pick up uh, if Trump were to 
leave office somehow or if, you know, scandals bring down all the other uh, contenders for the presidency is going to be immense. And I'm not sure that he's necessarily the best guy to do that, but I don't really know who else would be. So, yeah, I don't know. Just keep hitting the impeach button until the designators, designated survivor <laughs> exactly. shows up or whatever. <laughs> like the- That's what it feels like. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. Um, well, uh, yeah, we've talked about a lot here, but what do you think about, uh, Donald Jr. thing? I mean, how, how big is this going to get? Because like how many people were in that meeting, first of all, because it keeps expanding. Oh. Yeah. Um, I mean, today the eighth person, uh, eighth was people. named. Where did I'm they wondering have this meeting? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Tower is a big place. I, I was wondering if there was, you know, more than eight, um, is it a banquet know, hall of some sort? <laughs> I kind of suspect might be there, including possibly Trump himself, but you know, the eighth person was revealed, and so, I, you know, I went and looked him up, and of course, he was uh, implicated in a Russian money laundering scheme in 2000, so you've got, like, a Russian money launderer, you have Manafort as a Russian agent, you have a Russian lawyer tied to the Kremlin, you have a Russian a lobbyist who works, uh, you know, for the FSB, um, you know, I feel like, you know, you have the other translator, and I, I know I'm forgetting somebody else, uh, oh, you have the publicist for a Russian oligarch, <laughs> and then you have Donald Jr. And, you know, you have Jared Kushner. And this is in a month. This is in June 2016, where Trump was saying over and over again, I have nothing to do with Russia. And that it was a giant lie. And Manafort was going on TV. He was at this meeting and saying, oh, yeah, I have nothing to do with Russia either. None of us in the campaign, we all have nothing to do with Russia. And so, you know, they were covering this up for a reason, you know, because this is incredibly incriminating on a number of grounds, you know, ranging from campaign finance reforms to Kushner lying on his SF. Uh, 85 is standard, uh, you know, clearance reform about meeting with foreign officials to collusion, uh, to possible treason. Um, and so normally, you know, this would just be explosive. This, this would be a huge deal. And, it, you know, it is a huge deal. It is one whether they want to admit it or not. Um, they're not going to. Uh, and that's because they've unfortunately consolidated power to the degree that I don't know who will actually bring forth uh, repercussions for any of this because, you know, Trump can issue presidential pardons, and Sessions uh, is also implicated in the Russian interference scandal, and so he's not going to prosecute anybody on it. Um, You know, they chose people who were implicated in the scandal to be in positions, you know, like Attorney General, for that reason, because every time they they go after somebody else, uh, you know, they implicate themselves, and no one wants to do that. So they have a pretty good setup, Um, and, you know, the one thing that to watch out for is that Trump can pardon on a federal level, uh, but he can't pardon for state crimes. And I think in the state of New York, um, there are likely a lot of financial crimes committed, uh, you know, money laundering and, you know, and things of that nature. And we know that Trump has been implicated with a number of Russians have done it. We certainly know Manafort has been implicated in that. And so I think that that's something that may ultimately bring them down. Like, we're kind of looking at a Al Capone on tax evasion scenario where the crimes they've committed are huge. Um, you know, they basically, it looks like treason to me, uh, but they may get taken out on something like lying on an FS, an SF-86 or, um, you know, uh, having a, you know, a tax fraud issue, something along those kinds of lines, because you can actually prove it and prosecute it, um, whereas the other ones may get dismissed because Trump will abuse his power in the executive branch. Mm-hmm. Now, I've heard it said, though, that treason wouldn't apply unless we were actually at war with the, you know, other said country uh, would. Yeah, 
it's very hard to define. Um, I mean, I think they're treasonous, but I couldn't prove that in court. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, my my opinion is is basically it's it's treason. Yeah. And the reason that we're having basically, trouble yeah. describing it is because it's cyber war, cyber activity. Um, you know, if if the you know the reason Trump's meeting, Trump Jr.'s meeting, is so interesting is because it's it's a face to face meeting, so it seems to have this feeling of you know greater weight to it. Um, but because so much of you know the attacks from Russia, like right now we're currently being attacked by Russia. Like they're trying to hack our infrastructure, our nuclear plants, our power grid. Uh, they hacked the State Department in 2014. They hacked the Department of Defense in 2015. You know these are not physical ha- attacks from the outside. It's not like a 9/11 situation where they're you know, ramming a plane into us, and everyone's like, oh, yeah, it's a clear-cut attack. But it's still an attack, and I think that just, we don't have a legal language uh, to, ha- to handle cyber warfare. Um, politically, I don't think people have caught up with how to define cyber warfare and what makes an adversary. And, of course, they cover their tracks, and so you don't know exactly uh, who to blame. You know, if the Kremlin hires outside hackers to carry out these activities, you know, who are you actually prosecuting? Like, how do you yeah. prove those ties? And I think that that's what, you know, Mueller um, and others are doing in this investigation, you know, are working on right now. Do you think he will fire, fire Bob Mueller? I think he'll try. Um, I'd be so? really surprised if... Yeah, I mean, the thing with Trump, though, is like, it, it could happen on a whim. Like, he could have a bad day. He could see something on TV that freaks him out. You know, Fox and Friends may say the wrong thing, and then he'll want to fire Mueller. Like, it could happen at any time for any particular reason. Um, you know, I, I think that after firing Comey, you know, he's now uh, being accused of obstruction of justice because, you know, Comey was investigating Flynn, and Trump outright admitted, I wanted this investigation gone. I didn't want this guy looking at me. I didn't want him looking at the people I hired. I didn't want this whole Russia thing hanging over me, so I fired him. And he just said it. You know, <laughs> he just gave up the whole game. And, you know, this, again, is another situation where normally uh, he'd be kind of, there'd be impeachment hearings going on. Um, but there's not, because the GOP Congress won't make a move. Uh, and so it's hard to say. I mean, if he fires Mueller... It's yet another obvious admission of guilt um, when the investigator keeps firing the investigators, uh, you know, but I could see it happening anyway. And then, you know, I don't know uh, where we would go from there. Um, you know, I, I think it, if it gets to that point, I think other things will have shifted politically that Trump feels very, very confident um, that there'll be no repercussions for his actions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if the founders considered what's happening now is the problem. I don't know what the, like, constitutional remedy is, because, like, okay, according to our system, there's no way, right, that Hillary Clinton will ever be president, even if we find out this is a completely illegitimate president based on a number of factors, you know, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> what do we do then? Yeah, what mean, do we do if every single person in the party is complicit, and the, and the check and exactly. balance doesn't work? I mean, they, they uh, wrote that with the expectation that, the you know, arm of government that was supposed to check the other arm would function, you know, and stand up to the, you know, moment. But you have Paul Ryan and these people. What do they want? Is it what is so important that they're willing to risk all this? Like, yeah, I mean, that's that's what I've been wondering. You know, there's there's obviously greed. There's you know some who are clearly taking advantage of the chaos of the situation to try to pass things like you know Trump care, um, you know, long term plans that they hadn't been able to do under Obama. But you know, I mostly look at them and I see a mix of like of avarice and greed, but also a lot of fear. Um, you know, it does seem like they're 
constrained by something. Um, and I think some of that is fear of, of Trump, you know, who's extremely vicious when he fights back. But, you know, one thing people aren't talking about um, that I think is kind of a big deal is, again, the fact that Russia is hacking our infrastructure. And, you know, recently Russia attacked Ukraine um, and caused mass blackouts in Ukraine through the exact same kind of attacks um, on nuclear plants connected to, you know, uh, electricity grids, power grids, uh, that we have in the United States. And so I sometimes wonder, you know, when Russia's government are tweeting out these threats every day, which they've been doing because they want their spy compounds back and sanctions dropped and all this other stuff, you know, is that hanging over people's heads? Is it not just fear of, you know, personal repercussions like Russia will release compromising information or it'll show that the Republicans weren't legitimately elected or you know, something like that? Or is it a broader threat to the U.S. itself? Um, you know, that's something I, I've been wondering about, and I've seen different representatives skirting around the issue in very strange ways, like McCain randomly brought it up uh, during Jeff Sessions' hearing. It had nothing to do with the topic of the hearing at all, uh, but he, you know, raised the issue and, and seemed very concerned. And so I kind of wonder, like, this seems like a big deal to me. Why are people covering it? Um, and I wonder if they're not covering it because they're afraid it'll cause you know, mass panic, and you don't want something like a run on the banks and people going nuts and people freaking out. Like, you know, that's not good when you have a government that's not going to actually calm you down and tell you what to do in this situation. They're going to like this kind of thing. But I, I have a feeling that the Kremlin has greater leverage over us than is being revealed, uh, just based on, on the behavior patterns of the people involved. Sorry, <laughs> Sarah. You, I know, you freak me out. You, can I tell you that you freak me out on a daily basis? Like, like I, I appreciate you on you know Twitter and your your things you write, but man, you freak me out like every day. <laughs> yeah, I'm not trying to freak people out. Like, I, you know, that's never my goal. Like, I want people to you know to fight what's going on, and you know, and I think some of this, like, I spent my life studying authoritarian states and you know dealing with really. But that's the problem. You know what you're talking stuff. about. That's the problem. Well, I know what I'm talking about, but I'm also like, I sometimes have to remind myself, like, okay, most people don't spend all their time reading about and dealing with and going to court over horrible, terrifying stuff. It's not like I, I don't find it horrifying anymore, like I do, but, you know, I'm used to it. Um, and so I can easily picture it happening here, and I just want people to be prepared and to, you know, understand the problem, understand potential problems that might happen and might not. Like, I might be totally wrong about everything I just said. Um, and, and just sort of steal themselves through them. And, you know, think of ways to help, you know, others in their community, to protect themselves, to hold the government accountable. Like, that's all I, you know, really seek out of this. I don't want everyone, like, hiding in their basements or something because I wrote something scary on Twitter. Like, that's, like, the opposite of what I want. Um, but I do think yeah. it's, you know, it's best to be forthright uh, and to kind of look at all possible outcomes. I think if we had that attitude during the election, instead of being in denial about yeah. so much, we'd be in a better place because I kept saying, you know, I think Trump is going and win. And then as the election went on, I, I kept saying, I think Russia is rigging the election. And everyone was like, you're nuts. Like, neither of those things are going to happen. And then they both did. And so I'm kind of like, you know, the time that people could have acted on this was the best time was really like 2015, 2016. Like, now we're very deep in the hole. And I still think we can get out of it. But it's a lot harder to do now, uh, you know, than before. So it's just good to look a few moves ahead. Do you blame Obama? I'm not happy with Obama about this particular situation at all. 
I mean, it's not just Obama. Um, I also think, you know, John Kerry is to blame. I think that the intelligence community uh, is in part to blame. I think the gutting of the intelligence community after the sequester uh, in which, you know, money that and resources for people who study Russia and Central Asia, uh, you know, was cut. Uh, I think that was a terrible decision. I said that at the time, um, back in 2013, 2014, like, you know, this is going to bite you in the ass. And then next thing you know, Russia is invading Crimea. Um, you know, there are all sorts of warning signs that weren't really heated. I think, you know, Obama's excuse that he didn't want to go public about this, uh, you know, because it made it seem partisan is really weak. Because to me, you know, this is a very nonpartisan issue. This is a national security crisis. And I think it would have been totally appropriate if he had just gone on TV and had some kind of special statement saying, you know, we are the, the integrity of our elections and also of, you know, different institutions, you know, that have been hacked by Russia have been compromised. And it's important that as a country, you know, we investigate this thoroughly, we investigate this in a nonpartisan way, and that you're aware uh, that this is happening. And, you know, I'm not alone in that opinion. Like Harry Reid, back in, I think it was August of last year, wrote to James Comey and publicly and said, you know, you have information that um, the results to the election may be falsified due to Russian interference, and he used that word falsified. And the minute I saw that, I thought, what the hell's going on? Like, you know, I want to learn more about this. Uh, and they didn't give us that information. And I think that, you know, as members of the public, we are absolutely entitled to that information. And so, you know, I do think Obama made a terrible mistake in, in not providing that, because it made stuff look worse after. You know, ironically, he didn't want to be partisan, but then now people are like, oh, the Democrats are just using Russia because, you know, they lost and they feel bad and they want to blame someone else. It's like, that's not it at all. Like, this doesn't have to do with Democrat versus Republican. This has to do with, is America, you know, safe, or have we been compromised, or are do, do we have a government that's actively working on behalf of a hostile foreign power like those are, those kind of uh, questions uh, affect everybody yeah. it shouldn't be seen in a partisan way um and unfortunately i think because it came out much more so after it seemed even more in that way and that's that's just mm. unfortunate yeah i just want to give a shout out to the republicans who warned us all through our childhoods about russia and now are <laughs> just so happy to you know look to them as our model so thanks a lot for your sincerity yeah. on that all those years ago <laughs> yeah I mean, it's it's really amazing. I mean, some of it isn't, because part of what, you know, the Republicans uh, in the Reagan era opposed was, you know, communism. Like, they actually opposed the ideology that was going on, like, you know, the atheism, things that they still oppose now. And then, of course, Russia becomes a hyper-capitalist, um, you know, oligarch-run society, which in many ways is similar to their ideals for U.S. society. Uh, you know, Russia also has its own theocracy, you know, which the, the American theocratic elements like Pence find appealing. So it's not that weird um, that they changed position, but what's interesting to me is how quickly it happened, because you can look as recently uh, as 2013, 2014, and see people like, uh, you know, Newt Gingrich um, or other Rus or other American Republican officials really calling out Russia and really criticizing Obama. Mm. And I, I agreed with them at the time. I couldn't believe it. I agreed with them, but I was like, you know, they're like, Russia is a threat. Uh, Russian cyber security yeah. issues are a threat. We need to do something about this. Uh, and then they completely change their course and are, you know, very pro-Putin, very pro-Kremlin, and absolutely docile when dealing uh, with Russian threats, which is just pathetic. Um, and so it's interesting to see exactly when they all flipped, because uh, I think it reveals maybe how long this project uh, has been in the making. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, gosh, 
where to begin with the you know it's like the, it's like you said the Russian Orthodox Church plays a very big role in Russian policy and they would like that very much for America and they would just like to make Christianity the law of the land and you know much in the same way ISIS and this is this is the crossover where you get these true believers and they just want to make their faith the way of law uh, regardless of how you feel about it um, that's what's so scary is that I guess that's that's probably one of the motivations you know also the nuclear blackmail of course as you've described um, but well, it's not nuclear I, I want to be clear like there's a difference between nuclear plants that provide energy and nuclear bombs like sometimes when I've tweeted about this people think oh my god Russia has the nuclear codes like mm-hmm. I don't actually think that's the case although it's possible Trump may give them the nuclear codes yeah. but I don't think that if they haven't hacked our weaponry I, I believe that they've hacked our grids which could mean mass blackouts which is its own kind of you know it can lead to a humanitarian crisis but it's different than nukes being you know dropped by Russia you know through, through hacking or something like that's not going on to my mind, so. not ideal either way but yeah. <laughs> well uh, we're getting near the hour mark and I really do appreciate you taking all this time uh, and uh, you know before we go I always ask uh, what music have you been listening to lately oh well I'm going to see Guns N' Roses next week and I'm oh my really gosh, excited really I'm so jealous that's awesome <laughs> I, I have been waiting like since I was you know 11 years old to see Guns N' Roses and you know of course their last St. Louis concert um, was the one where you know there was a riot um, and Axl Rose got kicked out and actually the same prosecutor who banned Axl Rose from St. Louis was the prosecutor in Michael Brown Darren Wilson what? case in Ferguson so I wow. hated that guy I didn't even know it for like 25 years I was like a Bob McCullough hating wow. hipster because I was there before everybody else. But anyway, Man. they're coming. Um, I'm super <laughs> excited. And so, you know, I've just been listening to a lot of GNR and, you know, I can't believe it's actually going to happen. Like, I totally expect Axel to just, like, not show up and ruin it because that would be typical you know, yeah. Axel Rose. But, but, you know, we'll see. Yeah. Remember when he got so mad about someone taping in the crowd that he like jumped into the crowd and like tried to like beat them up or whatever? Yeah, I think that might have been. I mean, he did that multiple times. I think he did that at the St. Louis show. And Welcome to the Jungle was actually about him hitchhiking from Lafayette uh, to St. Louis. Everybody thinks it's about L.A., but it's oh really? Okay. Yeah, he explained it in the opening one of his concerts. um, That was the hell. So he's always hated St. Louis. Like he has his St. Louis (laughs) sex shirt. So I'm really curious. Like what he's going to do now that he's returned after a 26 year absence. Mm. Like this ought to be, a, this ought to be a good show. So yeah. Wow. Well, that's a good answer. Um, uh, is there anything else I didn't ask you about that you want to, you know, keep people up at night about? Uh, no, I think we covered a lot of horrifying bases, so uh, I don't have anything else to say. Right, right. Well, uh, I want to tell you that I do look to you uh, for somebody that, you know, I feel like you have your pulse on kind of what what's going on and maybe what's possible and what people should think about more. So I do want to thank you for your work. I appreciate it a lot. Um, it, I feel like I'm more informed for having, you know, uh, read your work and, uh, you know, again, I appreciate you taking all this time to talk to me about it. I hope to talk to you again soon. So oh, thanks for having me on. No problem. Have a good day. You too. Later. Bye.
you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways to support it. I have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com forward slash Rob Burgess Show Patreon. I hope you'll consider supporting in any amount. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review the podcast everywhere it's available, which includes iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Facebook, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, and RSS. It really helps. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. Until next time.